What is yeah. Oh, we got a message. What is it? You just walked in the door. Give me about 10 minutes. You know, he goes to Europe, and now he's a big shot. Oh, is that you responding? Yeah. Uh, Perhaps you want to join in and make fun of him some more. I did. Help, help me to abuse him, not the world traveler. Come on, you stuttering. Get on the call. <laughs> you know, he used to always be on time. He was the slave driver. Now that he's a world traveler, we all got to wait. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. You know, this is the month we could have caught up on business. You had the editors, assistant editors in there. I know. Could have been ahead and taken a vacation. I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. I got to get him on the other thing we're working on the origins program yeah that's we could have been ahead we could have taken advantage of the assistant editor's help now the assistant this week is the last assistant editors and what do we have to show for it nothing nothing, nothing. what a disgrace disgrazia that's right and that's he's still not on. when he gets on we should make like we're wrapping up like we're doing our grades so what did you rate this book as? So as a whole, I put it as an A. I sure. thought this was great. And thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good night. All right. That's a wrap. Okay. What the fuck was that all about? What? Were we supposed to wait for you? We got did you already record night? the show? Yeah, we're done. We just did all our right, that's, that's fine with me. You thought this shit book was an A? <laughs> I, I think you're a shit. <laughs> Mr. Ooh, Mr. European Disney. Oh, I'm How come big, you don't have an I'm accent? I'm a big shot. <laughs> don't you have an English accent now? Nah, I don't think so. You want me to put my... Put my uh, he's Mr. I, I like to call him Mr. Cockney. Not because he sounds... Not because he's got the accent. I just like to use the word Cockney. <laughs> <laughs> What the hell? All right, so it's device. And you know what? Don't be insulting my book when you bring nothing. You got nothing. You think this shit book is an A? So you don't don't be saying bad things about my book when you bring nothing. If I'd have known that this was the book you were bringing, I'd you know after reading it, I would have I would have uh, I would have brought a book. We could just cut you out of the call. That's right. Goodbye. <laughs>
we don't need you. So it's it's we've we've already burned enough time. Let's get into this, baby. <coughs> I'm trying to. All right, go ahead. But well, fuck it, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna keep eating my dinner because I'm starving. Because yeah, you suck. I just got out of work. Oh yeah, poor me. Uh, I just had to work. You guys don't go to work. What is this Rip on Scott Day? No. Every, Every day, day is Rip on is Scott, Rip Day. Scott Day. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, in fact, I believe it's There's National Rip on Scott Day. Oh. I saw people putting up their pictures on Facebook. Here's my picture for National Rip on Scott Day. <laughs> uh, you should give us a little spiel about well, how, so how was the trip? Well, let's get into the let's go into the show beautiful. and then we'll talk because because yeah. he's probably got some some interesting points about you know how he schooled King Charles and all. <laughs> so, hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm here with Mr. David Pescarella. Good. How are you doing, gentlemen? And we are here with the world traveler, the <laughs> world-renowned, uh, multi-continental Scott H. Gardner. The H stands for hopping, as in world hopping, as in globe hopping. Oh, there's <laughs> going to be no living with him now. Oh, no, no, not at all, not at all. Well, ju- um, just the fact that you're wearing that monocle and you have the cigarette holder is throwing <laughs> you off. Yeah, when did you start to smoke, anyway? <laughs> um, yes, I uh, I just recently returned from, uh, from a trip. It was my very first time um, going to the UK. It was my, my first time crossing the Atlantic. Um, up to this point, the, uh, the only foreign country I'd ever visited was... Uh, was Canada. So yeah, this was, this was pretty cool. You know, it was a, it was a lifelong, uh, you know, just something I'd always wanted to do. You know, the, kind of the origin of the, of the whole trip was, uh, um, you know, I don't know if I, if I disclosed this, uh, on the show before or not. Um, but, uh, I had, uh, you know, my mom passed away, um, early in the year, as you guys know. And, uh, you know, coming back from that, um, my wife couldn't be with me through through all of you know the whole the whole process and everything. But once everything all settled down and I got home and everything, and I was talking with my wife, um, I just said to her, I said, uh, you know, tell, tell me something that's on your bucket list. You know, what's what's something that you absolutely want to do, you know, before the end of your life? And she's you know she it was no hesitation at all. And she just said, uh, you know, I've always wanted to go to England, you know, I've always wanted to go and go to England and, you know, do London and, you know, just the whole UK thing. And, uh, I, you know, I'm equally without a hesitation. I just said, uh, book that shit, book it right now. Cause we're not getting any younger. And, you know, I just, I, I don't want there to be any regrets, you know, at the end of our lives, you know, I want to do the things we really want to do. And, um, you know, there's there's no time like the present. You know, there's there's no reason we couldn't do it. You know, um, you know, other than money. <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's you know, we can we can manage that. So anyway, you know, long story short, you know, she did some digging around and checking into it and everything. And then, you know, being a, a cast member, um, you know, we get a really good discount on um, cruises. You know, Disney cruises um, when they're offered. And she just happened to find, uh, and I didn't even know that this was a thing. I mean, I, I knew about Disney Cruises, but I didn't realize that we had um, a, uh, a British Isles cruise. I, I had no idea. So she did, you know, did all the legwork on it and everything. And it turns out that uh, 
the Disney Dream um, was just, you know, just happened to be doing a, a British Isles cruise. Um, so really all we had to do was was get to England. So um, it actually turned out the, the airfare was significantly more than the entire cruise. Um, so that was you know a bit of a challenge. But anyway, we uh, we flew over um, to London. And we stayed uh, basically two and a half days in London. Uh, and then we trained over to Southampton, England and boarded the uh, the Disney Dream from there. Now, you know, if you know me, especially if you've been a longtime listener to, you know, the Two True Freaks Network and everything, then, you know, you know that I'm a, I'm a lifelong Titanic buff. So, you know, it's, it, it's a testament, I think, to how much I adore my missus that um, she was able to get me on a giant, mostly black cruise ship leaving from the port of Southampton, you know, headed out into the open water. You know, when I, I you know, I, I have a, you know, a, a fear of, uh, you know, everything associated with that. But it was it was cool. It was really neat. And uh, as a surprise for me, you know, I knew some of the things that we were going to be doing, um, you know, on our excursion, but I wasn't aware of everything because she did all the planning for it. And one of the things I didn't know that she had done was we only spent uh one evening in uh you know we spent overnight in southampton before the you know leaving on the cruise the next day and she actually booked us into the white star tavern um now white star was the company that owned uh the titanic you know it flew under the white star flag um this place the white star tavern um is a building that's well over 100 years old and had actually been a ticket office for the Titanic back in the day, you know, for White Star. Um, you know, there was other ships, of course, uh, that it serviced, but you know, most famously, um, passengers that would have boarded the Titanic in Southampton would have gotten their tickets, would have basically gone through this particular venue um, to actually board the ship um, for that voyage. So that was cool. You know, that was really neat being able to actually stay. Um, you know, in that building and, uh, you know, they give a little tour and there's a lot of history. And I mean, they totally embrace the whole thing, um, you know, that, that you know, it's they're going to be dealing with a lot of, you know, Titanic nerds and everything. And of course, I'm a huge one. So it was it was really that was cool. Um, and then, you know, we you're were on a the Titanic sh- nerd, even if you don't care about the boat. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, uh, you know, then we boarded the ship and it was, uh, you know, a seven night cruise. And, um, um, you know, one day was at sea, but everything else was, you know, uh, different ports of call, you know, a different port every day. So we went, oh, gosh, I can't even remember everything we went. We went to Belfast, Northern Ireland. Um, we went to Liverpool, England. We went to um, um Scotland. I forget where we actually docked in Scotland, but then we took a, a train or bus something and went to Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh Castle, and that was that was one of the real highlights. Um, I didn't really know what to expect from all this. I was just kind of along for the ride to enjoy the whole thing, and uh, uh, Scotland was turned out to be probably my favorite thing that we did. And, and the yeah, because you I, think it's named after you. Well, yeah, I mean, there was that, you know, that whole aspect to it, but it was just, I mean, it was, it was unreal. I mean, so beautiful and just walking down streets and, and, 
venues and buildings and and everything where literally everything around you is hundreds of years old. Um, We don't really have that here in the U.S. I mean, what's the oldest thing here in the U.S.? Like St. What is it? St. Augustine in Florida? You know, it's like 150 years old or something. I mean, it's just there's nothing here that compares, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it it was really cool. Um, I haven't yet posted. I took like a million and a half pictures. I've I've only posted just a few because the Internet was shit the whole time that we were gone because, you know, I refused to pay the exorbitant price to have you know the disney internet while you're on the ship so you're kind of at the mercy of you know each port that you stop at you know just the um what do you call it the you know internet through the air you know (laughs) that sort of thing um so you know i didn't get to post near as many pictures you know while we were actually on the cruise, you know, in, in, in these places, but I, I'll eventually, you know, do a huge photo dump of all that for anybody that might be interested. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was just amazing, you know, going to, you know, all these famous historical, you know, towns and, um, you know, we wrapped up the, the last day with Stonehenge, which is just, I mean, to actually stand there, you know, that you're, you're at Stonehenge after all the movies and, you know, everything that you see. I mean, it's just one of the most historic places on earth. I saw your picture um, there and I just pictured you like bumping into one of them and knocking them over. I, you know, I, that was my only disappointment with that is I, I wish you had that ability because you, you're I actually, told at, you. yeah, you're at quite a, you've been there, right? Yeah. 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 yeah you're at, you're at quite a distance. I mean, you, you get close enough in, in one, because there's a big like circular path that goes all the way around it, and there's there's one area uh, that that's closer than everything else, and it's not like you you could actually reach out and touch it, but it's close enough that you kind of have the illusion, if you know what I mean, that that it's close enough you could almost touch it. But yeah, I mean, knowing ahead of time that I wasn't going to be able to actually put a hand to them lessened the disappointment but it was still disappointing i mean because i've always heard and read how you know standing in the circle you know you feel the power or whatever the hell you know the whole legend of the thing is and i i would have liked to have done that i would have liked to have actually stood in the circle um but unfortunately you can't do that and it is um it's weird it's very touristy but it's touristy from a, almost like a county fair type of thing because it's not like it's not like going to a theme park or or anything like that. It's it's like you're bused to a uh, you know basically like you're out in the middle of friggin' nowhere. It's it's you know it's just a big old field, but there's like a little um, like visitor center, like a welcome center. And then you bust from there, unless you want to walk, and it's a long-ass walk, so we did not do the walk because we were already exhausted. Um, you bust to the actual, um, you know, Stonehenge itself, you know, the actual monuments. Um, and that, you know, it was just kind of bizarre. Um, but it's also really, I mean, it's just really cool, you know, to think that this thing is, you know, they, I don't even think they actually know exactly how old it is, but it's at least like 4,000 years old. And, uh, you know, that was really cool. But I actually got more, I think, in a lot of ways out of out of some of the other things that I initially had no real knowledge or or anticipation of, Um 
you know, like we did uh, Buckingham Palace, which, I mean, my wife got a lot out of it. That was her big thing. I, it was cool, but, I mean, if I'd never gotten to see it, it wasn't going to kill me. But, um, like, Edinburgh Castle, I didn't know shit about that and didn't really have any interest in it. But after being there and seeing it and touching it, I was like, damn, this is really, this is cool. You know, so it kind of, you know, had that <clears throat> that fascination factor, you know, that sort of thing, just because of the age and the history and all but. You know, the big thing for me was that um, she had initially um, booked us for two, two or three um, Titanic museums, and we actually ended up doing um, all of them. Um, so we did in total four different Titanic museums. So it's basically four of the the biggest and most famous and most um, comprehensive titanic museums in the world because it's southampton um liverpool uh belfast where she was built and what the hell was the other one i'm completely blanking now but there was another one that we did as well so yeah there was four four of them that we did all together and uh yeah that was that was cool that was oh uh, it was um it's called cove today um, but it was Queenstown. That was her, her last stop before going to sea. So, you know, basically doing, um, you know, her whole route, you know, where she was built, um, where she sailed from Southampton, uh, her home port, which she never actually went to Liverpool, but Liverpool still has a museum for it because that was her home port. And then um, what had been Queenstown um, back in that day. So that was neat because you got a different perspective from each different place. And so each different museum had a different perspective, but it also had a different focus. Um, and that was really interesting because some of them would be very focused on the technical, um, you know, how the ship was constructed, you know, how it was uh built you know other was would be more focused on you know the amenities and the technical aspects and all the facts and figures but the the two that really um stood out to me were um southampton uh where she sailed from and then also belfast where she was built because i felt like those were the two that um I'm sorry, it wasn't Bel Belfast was where she was built, but it wasn't the Belfast one that was, uh, I, th I think it must have been the Queenstown one. But so Southampton definitely focused on the human element and the human side of it. And that one was probably my favorite. It was the first one that we did, but it was probably my favorite because there's a point where you, you uh, as you walk into this one room, it says that every dot on the map represents where um a resident of that town southampton um that was on the titanic perished because that's where her she was crewed from southampton primarily and then you turn around and look behind you and there's an entire map of the town laid out on the floor and just covered with these red dots and that's what it really hits you like wow i mean this this entire town was like devastated by by that so it was it was neat you know um 
celebrating you know, one of the great human tragedies while on vacation. But it was it was you know it's just cool to actually you know have gone to these places after you know so many years of you know reading about it and you know all the different movies and videos and you know so it was it was cool from that kind of perspective. Maybe, you know, maybe, actually, maybe for your next vacation you can go see the Hindenburg. <laughs> Right across the river in New Jersey. Right. But it was cool. Yeah, speaking that, of, is, that, is, that is cool from a historic point of view. You didn't get to see uh, Castle Leyland, though, huh? No, you know, I reached out to, to Andy, and, uh, you know, but I, I don't blame I mean, I don't know the, the physical distance, but I know he It doesn't lives. matter. It's it's England. He has to be nearby. <laughs> um, I, I know that he, you know, the, the only opening that we had the entire time was um, our second night in London, and... I don't know the actual distance, but I know that he lives a significant distance from London. So I, I didn't blame yeah. him. And, you know, I didn't know what he had going on or whatever. But I but I, you know, I did hear from him. And then, you know, he just said, you know, I wish we could get together, you know, that sort of thing. But <coughs> I'm going to um, apologize <clears throat> to the listeners right now. I'm uh, getting over a bit of a cold that I caught right at the tail end of our vacation so my voice is uh, probably going in and out a little bit but uh but anyway yeah that was uh, that was my exploits here's the funny thing though is that every single place we went i looked up where the local local comic shops were every place as you well you should guess how many i actually got to go to zero uh one i did get to go to one um it was zero for most of the trip. And then at one point I actually, and I can't even remember now what the hell town it was, but, um, they have, um, a shop over there, um, that I found in almost every port that we went to this particular comic. It must be a chain. Um, they had a store and I want to say it was forbidden planet. It was forbidden something. I think it was forbidden planet. Um, which I'd heard of, and I'd always wanted to go to one. The one I went to was was rather small. Um, it was a two story, but it was really nice, and the people there were super friendly. I just I was so strapped for time um, that I basically I was on a mission. I was like, if if I get a chance to go to any comic shop, I'm going into it for one reason and one reason only. And if they don't have it, I'm not even wasting my time. British Planet that. of the Apes comics. Uh, well, there there would have been that if they'd had them, but it was a Br- the British Star Wars because I'm I really want to complete that collection. Um, but when I was walking up the stairs in the one comic shop I got to go to, um, I got really excited because on the wall um, they had British um, comics, uh, Marvel comics, you know the the Marvel UK comics, but it was the Spider-Man stuff, like the like Marvel Team Up or whatever whatever it was called over there. I forget. Um, I used to know, now I forget. But uh, Spider-Man primarily, I think there were one or two with like I don't know other Marvel characters, like the Avengers or somebody. But it got me really excited. I'm like, damn, they've got them. Um, but when I talked to the guy, he's like, no, you know, we never get the Star Wars stuff. He he claimed it was really hard to get, but I don't know. I see him listed from the uk all the time but the reason i you know it's still hard for me to fill in my, my collection is the shipping you know it just kills you on the shipping but uh it's cheaper to fly over there <laughs> pick them up and yeah. bring them back all right but uh it made me so when i was in um 
Oh gosh, where was it? See, everything just kind of runs together. But it was there was at one point where I think it was when we were at Edinburgh, but I, I don't hold me to it. But anyway, there was one point where uh, where we had a little bit more to because that was the other thing is that uh, you know you're really strapped for time at these stops because most of them you, you've you've only got just a couple hours at most. Like when we were at Liverpool, all all told. I think we had like an hour and a half, which really kind of sucked. I, I really wish I'd had more time there. Um, but this one stop, and I want to—I want to say it was when we were in Edinburgh. We had a little bit of time, and so my wife and I briefly split up. And she was gonna—you know—she was like, "Go do your do your, go do your comic shops." So I end up walking down this like ridiculously steep hill, you know, street essentially following google maps or whatever i was following to get to this comic shop which i think was another forbidden planet if i'm not mistaken and i get all the way down to the end of the road and it's like basically you know turn left and there it is and i turn left and i'm like where the hell is this place i'm looking all around and i suddenly realize that basically it was above me so i was one street over and like, I know it's hard to describe, but like I'm below where this place is going to be essentially above me. So I'd have to go all the way back up the hill, which I did. But then when I got to the hill and I'm looking down the correct street where this place would be, I realize it's like three or four blocks down. And by this point, I don't have enough time to get there. It's like by the time I would have walked to it, it I would have been out of time. So I was like, shit. So I didn't get to go to that one. So I was, I was kind of bummed, but. I tried, you know, but uh, that wasn't really the purpose of the visit anyway, but it, w- it would have been neat to just, you know, check out. Some, I, I would have liked to have been able to hit at least a couple more, um, you know, of the of the UK comic shops just to get a feel for them, see what they were like, because the one that I went into, I didn't really I mean, I was only there for a minute when I when the guy said he didn't have what I was looking for. I just kind of turned around and left, but it would have been nice just to kind of dig and see, you know, what kind of stuff do they have and, you know, what are they like and that sort of thing. But uh, I think this lit a fire in both of us that we, we do want to go back at some point, you know, when we actually can spend more time and, and make it like a proper focused vacation, like on one or two spots type of thing, rather than just, you know, a, a couple hours here and a couple hours there because you, you get a you get a nice taste of it you get a nice feel for it but it's not any yeah you know, it's not enough time to actually like dig in and you know really do much of anything if you know what i mean Definitely. I, I rarely know what you mean <laughs> but that's what i did on my summer vacation all right you know i i'll just Really, really quick, just to add, though, and to uh, tip my hat to my wife. Uh, we were down in Alabama this weekend, and uh, we were in a, a large group with a van that we were traveling from the airport to the bed and breakfast that we stayed at. And uh, as we were getting close by, all of a sudden she just says, oh, look, there's a comic store 1.2 miles away. Why don't we go there? But there were like seven other people in the van who couldn't care less about going to a comic store. So I, I, I ended up poo-pooing that. But just the fact that my wife thinks, oh, we should, we're in Alabama, we should go to a comic store, I, I have to give credit where it's due. This tells me that your wife needs to spend more time with my wife and maybe rub off a little bit because my wife is exactly the opposite. It's like 
you know, we, we could be standing in front of a comic shop and I'm not noticing it. And instead of her going like, hey, hey, there's a comic shop, she'd be like doing everything she could to keep my attention from the fact that we're actually <laughs> standing in front of a comic shop. So, yeah. So this van you were in, was this like an accessoride or something like that? We, we, we were laughing because it was this really, really big. I think it was a 15-seater, and it was just this plain white van, so we kept calling it the pedophile van. Did <laughs> <laughs> it say free puppies on the side? or well, that's candy? what I said. I said, we just, just pull over and tell somebody that we have a sick puppy inside. Could they help us? <laughs> Shady Acres Transportation. But anyway, I'm going to I'm going to cut this this end of the conversation because I I do find your vacation talk very interesting. Uh, But we are at least nominally a comic book program. So I'm going to talk a little bit of comics now. (laughs) And recently somebody posted on our Facebook page pictures of their uh, Marvel Comics Presents issues with Wolverine that they had picked up. And I made a comment about the anthology series you know, just in general, uh, which then had uh, Kirk commenting back to me. And he actually requested the book that we're going to cover in a few minutes. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about anthology series because I have always enjoyed those type of books. I'm I'm a little surprised because I am looking to fill in my collection on a lot of them. (coughs) Excuse me, mostly the Marvel ones, because... Uh, the DC ones are kind of priced out of my range for the most part, because DC, we're talking about like Showcase, Brave and the Bold, uh, you know, to some extent, World's Finest. Uh, and, and those those books, you know, to get the older ones, they're just crazy expensive or to get the significant ones, at least. I've picked up a few uh, over the years, but, you know, there's 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 limits to it, whereas the Marvel ones, for the most part, I've been more. Excuse me. I've been more enamored with those because a lot of them are more limited run. We're talking about like Amazing Adventures. Uh, I'm trying to think of what what we have. Marvel Premiere, Marvel Feature, Marvel Presents. Uh, What's the the other? I'm just drawing a blank on the other one that begins with A. Uh, (laughs) It's Amazing Adventures and Amazing Fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amazing Fantasy. Those are all cheap. <laughs> I just gotta. No, I, I know, I know what you what you mean, and I'm blanking on it too. I will well, have it. Let me, let me ask you. I mean, because when I when I hear astonishing astonishing tales, astonishing tales, yeah. When and, I and hear I, that term though um, of the anthology, I think more of uh, you know, I think more of like say like. Uh, like early action comics or something yeah. where, where it was like, like six or 10 or 12 different features, you know, that sort of thing. And like, well, I th- initially I, I thought this book that we were going to cover tonight was an anthology book. And I was kind of surprised when there was only one story in it. So is it considered an anthology book? I th- well, by anthology, I define it the same way you would an anthology TV show where you don't have a set star necessarily. You could have different things. Uh, I mean, okay. I, I think in effect what I'm calling an anthology book, and, you know, you can define them however you want, but I think what, what it is is effectively like a tryout <clears throat> book. 
we're going right, to try right, the, we're right. going to try this character out for a few issues and we're going to see if it catches on and if it does we're going to give them their own series and you know I, like I, in marvel in marvel premiere they they did uh they started off with warlock who then got his own series then they went to doctor strange and he got his own series then they went to iron fist he got his own series and then they kind of jumped around between a lot of different things until it concluded yeah. uh, marvel really- feature i'm sorry go ahead I was just going to say, I never really thought of it that way, but now that you say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. So under, under that sort of definition, I, I would say something like show, uh, showcase was an anthology or whatever. I, I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, I, I, I can see that. You know, Marvel features started off with the first three issues with the defenders. Then they got a series. Then it went from six to 10 or from five to 10, I believe it was uh, with Ant-Man, but he didn't catch on enough to give a series. And then issues 11, 12 with thing team ups, which then turned into Marvel two and one. Do you ever read so, those you know, Ant-Man issues? Yeah, I have. I have the, I have that entire series. I have that entire series. I have amazing adventures entire series. I have astonishing tales, the entire series. Uh, I'm trying to think, think of, uh, I think they Marvel. stink. Did you like them? Uh, I thought they were kind of interesting, actually. I kind of liked them, but then I, you know, I'm not as as closed-minded as you. <laughs> See, I was thinking anthology, like when Action Comics went for like 50 issues, the and then but then they they put different stars in, right? Right. Yeah. Right. But that is an anthology at that point. So I, I think your definition is correct. But it had more than one feature, though. Right. But, but I don't think that's the, a necessary. The same stuff was in every. Every book, there was a Superman strip, there was a Black Hawk strip. And to some extent, you could consider like Tales to Astonish, which had, uh, you know, the Hulk and, uh, and and Submariner as an anthology series until they got their own. Or Tales of Suspense with Captain America and Iron Man. In fact, Tales to Astonish originally had Giant Man. And then it became the Hulk, Giant Man and the Hulk. And then they kicked Giant Man's ass out of there. And it became the Hulk and Submariner. So, you know, then that was a split book is what, what I would call that. And then we also had, uh, well, in, in Amazing Adventures, uh, the first issues were, uh, was it was the Inhumans and, uh, and, and Black Dr. Doom. Widow? Was it Black Widow in some of those? Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, Astonishing Tales was uh, Dr. Doom. Yeah, yeah. No, Astonishing Tales was Kazar and Doctor Doom in the very yeah, beginning. Yeah, and and yeah, Amazing Adventures was was the Inhumans and the Black Widow, and then that was for the first eight. Then nine and ten became just the Inhumans. They eventually got their own series as well. Then eleven was the tryout for the Beast, which it went from eleven uh, to seventeen, and then from eighteen until the series concluded was uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, with, uh, Not long ago, I got the very first one of that, the the War of the Worlds, the Kill Raven one, mm-hmm. and that's got work in it by Adams and somebody else. I forget who. I don't know why the hell did I sell that. I, I wish I'd kept that because I got a re- I got it for a real steal somewhere for like out of like a dollar bin or something, and then like a dumbass I turn around and resell. I mean I I got a fair amount of money for it but i don't know why i got rid of it i, re- I really wish i'd kept that yeah i had picked that one up out of a two dollar bin so i paid double what you paid uh but i was pretty happy with that and that's that's actually when i found that in a two dollar bin it kind of sparked my desire to fill out that series yeah and it like took to a while 
it took a while for me to get the entire run because I was not willing to pay top dollar on anything. Uh, the most difficult one to find was issue 11, the first Beast issue. Uh, and that I think I got for like, I think I got paid like 20 bucks for it, which was a lot more than I wanted to pay because I want everything for free in reality. Uh, right. But I don't, I don't think it was an unreasonable price ultimately. Uh, so I, I always had a little fascination with, you know, well, actually bringing it back further, I always had a fascination with the X-Men, even when they were really kind of not very well written in the early adventures of the series, you know, with the original team. Uh, so then when I first started collecting comics, it was not that long after the Beast series had concluded in Amazing Adventures. So it was somewhere in between his his solo series and when he joined the Avengers. And I remember when I picked up the Captain America, I was picking up the Captain America secret society issues. There was an issue with, uh, it was, I think it was Cyclops, Cyclops, Marvel girl and professor X. I think they were the only three X-Men, but there was a point where they had a bunch of mutants that they had captured and they were like draining them. And the beast was one of them. And it really just triggered my curiosity for that character. And to this day, I'm still not exactly sure what the uh, progression was for them to decide, okay, we've canceled the original X-Men series, and now we're going to bring off the Beast into a solo series, but we're going to mutate him further. Like, I don't know exactly whose idea that was to do that or, you know, what what they really thought. But I don't think, you know, he never really caught on as a solo series character. And I think you're going to agree with that based on this book, even though I have a great deal of nostalgia for this series. So, so this adventure is taking place in that interim when the X-Men were homeless. Yeah. Yeah. They oh, were, okay. I didn't, they were I, a reprint book while this, when this came out. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Okay. And then, you know, that, that whole run kind of fascinates me a little bit because we had, uh, some of them showing up in Marvel team up and some of them showed up in the that Captain America run. A couple of them showed up in issues of the Hulk. So they, they, you know, they kept the characters kind of alive. Eventually, uh, which angel and Iceman went on the, uh, champions. Uh, so, right. you know, there was, a, there was a lot of, of, of trying out these characters different ways, I think, to see if they would catch on again. Uh, and eventually, you know, obviously they rebooted the series with Giant Size X-Men number one with only Cyclops and Marvel Girl staying on uh, from the prior series for quite some time. But where does again, this fall in relation to the X-Men's appearance with Spider-Man in uh, Marvel team up? Well, this issue we're looking at now is cover dated May of 1973. Give me a moment and I'll see what the Marvel team-up issue is. Because I've heard that issue credited as one of the things that uh, kind of kept the X-Men alive and in, 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 in the conscience uh, of, you know, of the readers of the time was that appearance in, uh, in Marvel team. I don't know if that's really true. Marvel team, Marvel team up number four was cover dated September of 72. So just a little before this then. Okay. And then, well, I, I'm curious now to see what the first, the issue 11 is actually March of 72. So the Beast series did start before that, uh, before, okay. before that appearance in Marvel team up by a very short, a very short time. I know, 
I know Angel's in that story. I don't think the Beast is in that story, no, though. No, he is not. Which makes sense if he's already in, in this run. Right. Because in, in, in this run, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, Hank McCoy went to work for Brand Corporation. And like any good scientist, he came up with a formula. And rather than test it out, he just drank it himself. Uh, and it, it mutated him into the hairy, uh, more bestial beast. Uh, you know, they've they've changed over the years, whether he was more like ape like or more cat like. And I kind of wish they'd make up their minds. Uh, I prefer the more I prefer the what we get in this than the I, yeah. I really didn't care for when they did the the cat like one. That was all that Grant Morrison shit. And I just I mean, yeah, I didn't like that stuff at all. What you just said, I'm going to put quotes on it and then I say the same thing. So, uh, so for whatever it's worth, you know, and he has one of the tropes that I always just have to like slap myself in the, I have to basically face palm myself and then get over it. Uh, because he's got this, this further mutation and to hide himself, he comes up with a latex mask. So nobody's going to know that that's not, (laughs) it's, it's like, it just always just irritates me when I see that, 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 you know, these latex masks are so, you know, they're, they're so able to fool people with them. If and, it and works the, for the mutants on the planet of the apes, it should work for him, too. Right? He, he also wears the uh, the latex gloves and he's got a relationship with with a woman. So and she you got to wonder. Know. Yeah, you got to know. Let's so, I mean, and, and you know why? You know why the reality is because these stories were written for people who are about 12 years old, not us. That is the reality of it. So you have to kind of get by that silly trope to, to go further with it. So uh, for the record, this book, and I just closed out. So as I said, it has a cover date of November of 1972. It is its release date is August 15th of 1972. The cover is by Jim Starlin. Joe Sinnott and John Costanza. I, I believe Costanza is a letterer, so it must be the artwork is Stalin and, and Sinnott. Uh, the story is called Murder in Midair, and it is written by Steve Englehart, penciled by Tom Sutton, uh, inked by Frank Giacoya and John Tartag, lettered by Gene Izzo, and edited by Roy Thomas. And before I get into the story, I'm going to take a little tangent and mention my John Tartag story. Uh, when I was, whatever, 12 years old or so, and just started getting into collecting comics with a couple of my friends and my cousin, uh, we got a number from Marvel Comics and we called them up to talk to them. And I believe we spoke to Marie Severin and we were just asking, oh, who else can we talk to? Who else can we talk to? And they put John Tartag on the phone. And I remember seeing an earlier book that he inked and his name was John Tartag Leone. Right. So, so it it occurred to me and I said, so you're John Tartag Leone. And he's, and he just got like all angry. He's, no, John Tartag. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to give the phone to my cousin now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my John Tartag story. So the cover, as I said, by uh, Joe Sinnott inking over Jim Starlin shows the beast. Uh, and he's being attacked by the Griffin, who is a, crazy as shit character uh <laughs> who who is basically you know a, a 
humanoid version of a the griffin from myth uh and we'll talk a little bit about his origin in this story because they're going to get to it but he the the griffin is, is has got him held up in the air uh and he says all right mutant i finished off the angel now it's your turn and if you you, you kind of have to squint but if you look you could see the angel is falling to his death in the background <laughs> but but it doesn't really call your eye to it all that much and then uh, the other cover copy says the coming of the griffin and I I am like with many other artists. I'm a little bit of a a mark for Jim Starlin. I I think his his artwork is very cool. So we'll move on from that now. The story opens up again. The title is Murder in Midair, and it opens with a kind of a cartoonish splash page of uh, Patsy Walker in in her little nightie opening the door, which must have been pounded on, and the beast looking huge falls into her arms and he's apparently bleeding some sort of black blood. Uh, And we're going to get into how that happened in a moment. He passes out on her couch and she goes to help him because her husband's going to tell her that she's being a silly female, but with a life at stake, she decides to help him anyway. And then we go into the beast's mind where he's kind of like, thinking about things and he's thinking about how he took this formula that turned him into the beast and how he fought Iron Man and he thought he killed Iron Man because Mastermind gave him an illusion uh, and then he ended up fighting Quasimodo and that's when he got injured because Quasimodo took a uh, like a rivet gun and and shot him and put a hole in in his arm Uh, and then he was thinking about the girl he loves, Linda who turns out don't tell anybody she's a secret agent for the secret empire. Uh, anyway, uh, he starts to wake up with Patsy there. And when he wakes up, his fur has darkened uh, to a black instead of instead of blue. And he starts to run away. And then she says, but you've been running all your life, haven't you, Hank McCoy, which stops him dead in his tracks. And then we see her from behind showing us her butt cheeks. And at that point, we cut over to the uh, Westchester mansion of the X-Men, where Professor X, Jean Grey, Scott Summers, and Warren Worthington are discussing the beast. And Professor X is saying, leave him alone. He's his own man. If he wants our help, he'll he'll call for it. Warren Worthington says, F you to to the professor and decides to fly off and check out what's going on with the beast. Meanwhile, the beast is leaving Patsy Walker's abode and he is attacked by the Griffin, uh, who, again, is a strange looking creature. Again, it's the the Griffin of myth. He's got a a, like a lion's head. He's got eagle's wings. He's got talons and he's uh, again attacking the beast. So the two of them start fighting in midair and they go back and forth. And as they're fighting, uh, the angel comes upon them. And he thinks they both look like monsters, and I can't tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So while he's pondering this, the beast gets the griffin with a shot right in the face, which has him falling down. And the angel decides, well, if he's falling, he's the one I have to help. And he, for that, he gets a big face full of fist. Uh, so then the angel is knocked out, and the beast has to jump down and save him. And he reveals to Warren Worthington that he's Hank McCoy and he takes him back to his apartment where they both strap up and uh, 
Ooh, that could be really out of context, huh? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the beast straps up so that he could stand erect. Another out uh, of context what? thing. Uh, and the, and Warren Worthington has to strap his wings down so that people won't see them. And he puts on his the beast puts on his latex mask, and the two of them decide to go out. So then we cut to Linda, the beast's love interest, as she talks to Number One from the Secret Empire, and they go back and forth, and she's trying to uh, assert her own uh, individuality and being told that she's basically going to be killed if she doesn't do the right thing. And then she come, she's beset upon by the Griffin, who is also working for the Secret Empire. He remembers back to when he was just a, uh, a local mobster muscle guy, and he was approached by the Secret Empire and told he was going to be a supervillain, and... Again, you know, I, I don't know what, what Joseph Mengele got a hold of him, but they they really kind of gave him some kind of setup here with this Griffin thing. Anyway. Uh, Hello. <laughs> back to the bins. You're on the air. <laughs> All right. Long time caller, first time listener. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And now we get back to our comic story where I want to uh, know why Green Lantern's <laughs> never been an Avenger. <laughs> why is he allergic to yellow? <laughs> take them both out with a pencil. <laughs> you take them out with a number two pencil. <laughs> okay, back to our story. So now uh, the Beast is being. Uh, investigated for possible uh, malfeasance by uh, Buzz, uh, Buzz Baxter, that is, who is Patsy Walker's husband at this time. And he's really just interrogating them until Patsy backs up their bullshit story and says that that she saw them in the restaurant where they were and that he couldn't be the uh, secret agent that they think he is. Uh, So he that they effectively have the charges against them dropped at that point or the charges against him, they leave and promptly go back into their superhero uh, identities and are quickly attacked by the Griffin once again. Uh, the two of them battle the Griffin with a little bit more teamwork than, uh, than the first time around, eventually leading to the beast pinning back the Griffin's wings and causing him to fall to the ground where Warren punches him in the jaw and knocks him out. And the two of them uh, head back where Warren says, if you ever need any help, get in touch with me. Uh, Hank goes over to the library where he's beset upon by a woman who we don't know who she is in the panel. But he says, you. Turns out it's Vera, the girl that he dated back in the early X-Men comics, if you don't know. Spoiler. As opposed from Malice. Yes, not Vera from else. <laughs> okay. Dingy. So now I'm I, I'm guessing without really actually hearing your opinions on this, I'm probably the highest on this book. Uh, and I'll tell you, the artwork to me is very inconsistent. There's parts of it where I think it's really cool, uh, and there's parts of it where I where I like it a lot. But I have to say that some of the panels look a little scratchy to me. Uh, in their inking. Some of the panels 
look like they could be a lot more dynamic. And my biggest problem is the perspective on the beast seems to change from panel to panel. Sometimes he looks huge and sometimes he looks a little smaller. And I don't think they really kind of came up with a, a body size for him. Uh, and that, that kind of took me out of the story at points. I think some of the facial uh, images uh, leave leave a lot to be desired. But otherwise, I feel like the storytelling is pretty good. Uh, the story itself, I think it's kind of cool. I, I, you know, I, again, I don't know how much I'm influenced by nostalgia. I mean, some of it is a little ridiculous about just, you know, how much you get away with on, on this, this uh, top secret place. But I still kind of, I still kind of dig it, to be honest with you. Um, overall, you know, I enjoyed the story. And I do like the fact that they pulled Patsy Walker out of mothballs to make her a character in the story. Uh, and then, you know, as as people are probably aware, eventually uh, Steve Englehart uh, decided, hey, I'm going to stick with her. And he brought her into the Avengers and made her into Hellcat. So, you know, I, I think that was all a kind of a cool progression. And this is the start of it. So. Overall, I enjoy this book. Uh, again, a lot of it is nostalgia, but a lot of it is I was rereading it and I was still enjoying it. So now I'm going to say, what do you guys say? I I had trouble with it, and I think it's simply because I don't think this story really works as a one-off. Because I don't know anything about the, these characters, and I was completely lost. Well, in that regard, does, did the synopsis help you to, to kind of understand what went on? Yes. Or, or are you equally confused? No, I mean, uh, I understand more with the background you gave. I mean, I knew the basics of, you know, the beast from the movies. But uh, I was at a disadvantage. I don't think this was a story that you could jump in with no, you know, experience with the characters and be able to run with it. I needed a little more information as you provided. But that's not the story's fault. That's my fault. Yeah, that's your fault. I did get the Merv Griffin reference, though. That I understand. I got that one. <laughs> All right, Scott, go ahead. Tear it to shreds. Um, I, I'm actually flipping through the other... Uh, the other beasts issues I know, or at least I thought that I had at one point, one of the issues, and I thought it was the prior issue, number 14 at one point in my collection. And I thought that I, I, I had a memory that I really liked it. Um, but 14 would I don't be know, the Quasimodo issue, I believe. Yeah, e either that's a false memory or my opinion has just really changed because I'm flipping back through it now and I'm just you know just judging it on the art. Um, I'm not finding where the art because I I was really thinking my my biggest hangup with this issue was the art. I think the art is absolutely horrible. As soon as I flipped past the because I like the cover. But as soon as I flipped it's the not opening, the same artist. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I, I saw that opening splash. I thought, oh, shit, what am I in for? Because that is a horrible opening splash page. And it really doesn't get better through the whole issue. And uh, yeah, this this was hard for me to get through because the art was just so bad. 
Um, but I didn't think the story was all that good either. And I, and I think Dave's onto something because I, this story's familiar to me. I, I think I know this story in the broad strokes. And I, th- I think that's either because I, I, I think I read pieces of it before. Like I said before, I think I may have owned chapters or at least a chapter of this. So it, it felt vaguely familiar coming in but also i think a lot of this is recapped later when uh when engelhart is actually on the avengers and beast has a larger presence there and as you say patsy walker came in which i feel like a dope that i didn't even realize this was patsy walker because they call her patsy baxter and I just didn't put it together at all. I'd forgotten that there was the whole thing where she was, was what happened to her husband? Didn't he get murdered or something? No, he, he ended up becoming like a, a villain. Like, I think his name was mad dog or something like that. Oh, uh, okay. The, it, it, it really, it kind of surprises me that I, I had such a negative reaction to this because I like so many elements that are involved. Now I I'm a huge Steve Englehart fan, or at least I, I consider myself to be. Um, I like the beast a lot, although this particular portion of his life isn't, I mean, this is where he's in transition. Um, so I, you know, it, it's, it's not that I mean, it's interesting, but it, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's more interesting to read about it, like in a in a uh, handbook entry or something, as opposed to really reading it. Um, I like Patsy Walker. I really like the Angel. I've always he's always been one of my favorite X Men, and believe it or not, I really like the Griffin. He's just such a goofy, weird ass character, and I kind of gravitate toward that sort of thing. <laughs> He eventually becomes the Submariner's steed. <laughs> but he he reminds me of basically if Omega Red and uh, who's that Forever People? Oh God, what was this? Oh, Big, uh, Big Bear? Bear? Bear. It's like if Omega Red and Big Bear had a baby. You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> he's just so goddamn freaky looking. You know, but uh, it's. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, I, I was really prepared to really go in, you know, really tear this one a new one. But I think, I, I think it's as Dave said. I think part of the problem is that it's a chapter. It's not so much a standalone issue. Um, and so, if you're going into this kind of blind without knowing what's, you know, what's already going on, and then I, I I don't think it really does much for you. I, I think this is one of those ones that uh, that would actually be better served as as reading it as part of a collection or or you know sitting down and reading like the whole run together. But as a as a standalone one off type of thing, it's yeah it. I, I don't disagree with you, and that's why when I gave my synopsis, I did kind of try and give a, a little background instead of just jumping right into the issue. Right, right. But now, see, from an you, from an art point of view, more of a service to our listeners and to us to follow along than Marvel actually did to the readers of the time, because I don't feel like any of the stuff you recapped is really sufficiently recapped in this issue to to give you that setup. 
So you're, you're really just kind of thrown into the middle of a story without knowing who all the players are and wh- where their positions are on the board, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so no, you, I, did a, I, you did a really good job of doing something Marvel didn't do. They needed a recap at the beginning. They did give a yeah. recap in the issue, but I agree with Scott that it was probably a little wanting. It probably didn't give you as much of a background as you want as you'd want going into this uh, to feel like you're familiar with it. Uh, I wanted to point out in, for the artwork, though, uh, I'm I'm putting a lot of it on the inking and the coloring in this uh, because I'm I'm just looking back at the earlier issues and I'm looking at issue uh, issue 12, which has got the famous cover uh, where it looks like, you know, he's he's standing over the uh, the the non-moving body of Iron Man saying, I, I did it. I killed Iron Man. Yeah, you've probably seen the cover over the years. Yeah. But anyway, that's drawn also by Tom Sutton, but it's inked by Mike Plug. Now, Mike Plug right. is a little bit of an acquired taste, I believe. I've been posting a lot of his uh, pencils on or original artwork scans on, on the Facebook page because I'm a fan of Mike Plug. And if you look at that issue, uh, the artwork is much more stylistic because of the inking. And it feels to me like it fits more into a Marvel horror book. But I feel like yes. this 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 character and the way it's being done can almost kind of uh, walk the line between a traditional superhero and a horror book, which Marvel was doing with Man-Thing and Werewolf by Night and Tomb of Dracula. And this almost can kind of stay just a little closer to the superhero end, but still have its foot in the horror end uh, as far as the stylisticness and, and the gothic nature of the artwork. And I think that Mike Plug's inks on Tom Sutton really worked well for me. I really like the artwork in that issue. But I, I also think quite honestly that what you're probably liking more than anything is the Plug and not the Sutton. Cause I'm, I'm doing the same thing looking at issue 14 where he's inked by Jim Mooney, who's an artist that I really like. And while I don't see it being overly Mooney, the, the portions and panels that I really like and there's not a lot of it, but the parts that I do like seem highly mitigated by Mooney's influence, if you know what I mean. So I I put a lot of my dislike um, of this particular issue, you know, the issue you actually brought, uh, was it 15, Um, Mm -hmm. on... Tom Sutton. I, I just I've never been a fan of Tom Sutton. I whenever I think Tom Sutton, I think of uh, Mar- uh, DC's first Star Trek run, where I thought pretty much from from the first issue to the last issue, I thought was pretty shit art wise. And my opinion, unfortunately, has not changed. I've tried to give the guy an even shake because I think he did at least one issue of uh, of Logan's Run that we looked at back when we looked at Logan's Run, and it was all right, but I, I still, I don't know, there's just something See, about his art style that just doesn't appeal to me. It, I, it think, looks... I think he requires a good anchor to clean him up, but I think yes. his layouts are good. 
I, yeah. I like I like his layouts. I like his storytelling. I like some of the uh, the dynamic nature of of the angles that he puts on things. But some of the renderings aren't quite what I would want. But I think with a solid anchor to clean up what needs to be cleaned up. Again, Mike Plug, in my opinion, fit his style very well. Uh, you know, then I think we're okay. Now, Mike Plug is is not traditionally an inker he's usually penciling his own stuff uh right. but in this in this case you know i think his his style went really well with it i bet you klaus jansen would do very well on tom sutton i don't know if they've ever I worked together i think he might uh, that's ringing a bell he might have been the guy that he <clears throat> was teamed up with on logan's run i don't know i'd have to look back at that but no i, I think you're definitely onto something because Look at page six of this issue of of uh, of fifteen, and that entire page, but most especially the last two panels of that page where the where the angel takes flight, reminds me heavily of Frank Robbins, who's another guy that the exact same thing you just said in my mind really applies to is that he's a great layout guy. But I often don't like his his art, you know, his his finished art. But when he's teamed with somebody who kind of tones him down and kind of mitigates his style a little bit, then sometimes I, I actually kind of dig his stuff. That's just not the case here. I, I think the artwork here is is frankly really ugly. Um, but flipping through some of the other because he's inked by somebody different almost every issue. So when yeah, but, but I think Plug served him the best of all of them. Yeah, I, I think the Plug issue looks really good. I think um, portions of the Mooney issue look pretty good. I'm trying to remember who some of the other ones were here. Uh, well, he's back with uh, with uh, uh, Giacoya on uh, on 13. Let me see who's. I know there was some other ones here that some different ones that inked him too. Um, Sid Shores on uh, on the first chapter on, on chapter eleven, which actually ain't bad, but he's much more of a werewolf uh, in that. Actually, the X Men look really good um, in that. By the way, Lo- Logan's run number seven was Sutton with Klaus Jansen. Yeah, see, I was I was thinking it might have been. Yeah, and I I seem to recall that I. I mean, it's been a while since I've listened to the episode we recorded on that. But if I remember right, I think I said something to the effect of I was kind of struck by how much I kind of dug the art, seeing as how it was Tom Sutton. But that's probably because, again, he's mitigated by Klaus Jansen, who typically I really like. So. Klaus Jansen, I think, is another one who's. It, it it needs to be he needs to be with the right guy though and it, it needs to be the same the right the right style of story right uh, I, I don't think his style fits you know I, I I prefer I prefer Klaus Klaus Jansen on for the most part on non typical superhero books although I've said many many times my favorite Klaus Jansen is inking uh, Sal Buscema in the uh, Defenders yes I I, I yeah. love those issues. Yeah, it was actually that stuff that changed my opinion of him, because up until seeing that stuff, I always associated him with basically being uh, Frank Miller light. Mm -hmm. And I know this may come as 
comic book sacrilegious, you know, sacrilegion to some people, especially Chris Honeywell. But I have never thought much of Frank Miller, even back at the height of his powers. I never thought much of Frank Miller as an artist. I thought, you know, he had, he just had that scratchy, unfinished shit. Blocky. And I didn't, yeah, blocky. And I just didn't like it. And I felt like, um, Jansen wasn't doing anything to polish him. You know, he was just kind of uh, just inking what what he laid down. So I, I you know, I, I I I had a negative association with him because of his association with Miller. That's what kind of brought him, you know, to my attention. But you know, then seeing later, you know, that work that he did on Defenders that you're talking about, that stuff's beautiful to me. Yeah, well, I always thought Frank Miller's strength was as a storyteller, not yes. as a not as a picture drawer. Yeah. So, but we, we, we're well, kind of wandering off the the target here a little. Bit. Well, no, I I think that I think there's you know I think we have talked about this before, but I think that there is a a strong case to be made for some of these guys that have gone on to, um, you know, whether it's gone on to be absolute legends like like Frank Miller or or just somebody. Um, well, I guess to a certain degree, maybe Frank Robbins was a bit of a legend too. But I, I think that there's certain artists that maybe I don't know. This is a weird thing to say, but I, see if you follow me on this. I, I think sometimes maybe they should have been held back, so to speak, to be like layout guys and not necessarily be the the guy that's you know the artist of the book you know the the penciler mm-hmm. or, or or you know the outright artist that they should have done like you know let me you know like like who was it uh infantino i think that was doing so many of the layouts uh for dc at one point you know basically giving them the the well i guess art director you know right um there were a number of you know the the famous guys at both Marvel and DC, you know, I, I think uh, Ramita filled that role for a time at Marvel, didn't he? Uh, basically being like the, the art director, like it was like so. kind of almost setting a house style type of thing. I don't know that I necessarily agree with house style, but just, I, I think that there's certain artists that are better suited to, to lay the thing out, but then let somebody else actually, if not outright draw it, then at least finish it, you know? Um, and, and so I think that there are certain people and, and I would, I would say, you know, my, my top candidate I'm thinking of off the top of my head would be Frank Robbins that, you know, a a hell of a visualizer and a, and a hell of a layout guy, but I typically don't care for his finished art because it's just got that weird bendy scratchy weirdness to it you know what i mean which is definitely an acquired taste yeah <laughs> there's no question I, I i wouldn't i don't question anybody who can't get into frank miller's art and uh, not frank miller i mean uh, frank robbins uh because because it is so stylistic and when i was a young kid reading his books i couldn't stand it and then as i got older little by little i started to appreciate it more and more so right so it, no, it's I definitely mean, an acquired taste yeah, I, I, I think comics is, is kind of, you know, rife with that sort of thing. You know, as, as, as you look back over it, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of examples of that. So well, I, I felt the same way. And I, 
to a certain degree, I do still feel the same way about uh, Jack Kirby as well, which, you know, you talk about your comic book sacrilege. But I mean, you know, there's there's still a large part of me that feels that um, at least on certain books, certain characters, you know, that sort of thing, that that he was much better served as being the guy to kind of block the scene, so to speak, but not necessarily the guy to, to be the artist for the particular, you know, whatever story character, whatever. So, you know, and just keeping on the tangent, I think Kirby kind of ran, uh, you know, he, he ran a whole range of things because it started out, he was doing, you know, what, what would have been the early comics house style stuff. And then eventually he kind of, expanded beyond that and created his own house style which is the really really great stuff that he did in the late 60s uh i i I don't think you can really question that but by the time he went over to dc he was starting to develop more of the blocky look himself uh you know and and then from there it it you know uh it depended on who was inking him from there really is what it came down to right but he, he was there was never a point where Kirby couldn't handle a layout. Right, right. No, yeah, I know I agree with you. I that that's what kind of <clears throat> pardon me, ended up I think really starting to change my opinion uh, of him and you know, to a point that I, I now feel really bad, you know, whenever I have to admit that I I really disliked Kirby as a kid and it took me a long time to get over that prejudice. But I, I think the thing that a, at least began that process was coming to discover that, all right, love or hate the art. Damn, this guy could do a layout. You know, he, he could really visualize a scene, especially when it was a dynamic scene or an action scene or a, or an incredibly like sci-fi Vista. I mean, some of his, vistas of asgard which is absolutely Mm -hmm. stunning you know to a point that you know when you see the first images of asgard in in the first thor live action film i mean it's kirby come to life and i love that stuff and that's what you know started to turn me around um but it was it, it took a long time for that process because i was so stuck on the stuff that I'd seen from when I was first coming into comics. And of course he's at the end of his career when he's doing stuff like super, uh, what was it? Superpowers, which I'm sorry. It's absolute uh, shit. It dude, was just terrible. Terrible. Yeah. And so it was really hard to, to, you know, to get past that prejudice because of course, you know, first impressions are the lasting impressions. And that was like some of the first stuff of his I ever saw was that shit that he was doing on Superpowers. Super, Superman so and Darkseid should not look similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, they shouldn't look like they were carved out of granite. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, Darkseid should. Right, but not <laughs> Superman. No, well, that's why they were having other people do Superman's face. Yeah, like in Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Olsen, yeah. They had, uh, who was it, Adams, I think doing doing yeah, the faces so. redoing the faces yeah or either him or andrew or maybe both yeah but bringing us back to amazing <laughs> yeah that was quite the tangent sorry <laughs> let's let's rate this book all right now i think the jim starlin cover is great 
So I'm giving it an A. I, I, you know, my only my only complaint about it is I didn't like this era where they put the artwork in a box on the cover instead of letting it take over the whole cover. Uh, but other than that, I have zero criticism of this cover. I think it's really dynamic. I think it's well drawn. An A. Interior art. I went back and forth on it. I, I, I don't disagree with anything you said about the final product. Uh, I do think a stronger anchor would have helped this a lot. I, you know, I'm trying to picture this with Mike Plug doing it, and I think it would be far superior. I also don't like the colors. I think there's there's a bright color scheme in a lot of the in a lot of the pages that just does not need to be there. This should be a little bit of a darker story. Uh, and a lot of, you know, I, I have to criticize a lot of the faces, uh, in particular, that that page that you talked about with uh, page six with the, with the angel. I mean, I think the angel's supposed to look like a, you know, he's supposed to look like a GQ model. And on here, he looks more like a thug. So yeah. I, I, I'm just not not in, you know, not up on that. And a lot of the pictures, you know, when, when you start getting into the backgrounds, there's very, very little detail in them. Uh, you know, I. I, I I, I got to put most of it on the anchor because, like I said, I think the layouts are good. I think Sutton requires a good anchor. You know, he's he's not going to just take it and run with it. So I'm going to put the, the most of the blame on Giacoya and Tartag. I'm assuming with Giacoya and Tartag, one of them did the uh, figures and one of them did the backgrounds. And the one who did the backgrounds in particular, I'd have more criticism, criticism of. But even the one who did the figures, a lot of the facial expressions and things, I'm giving a negative to. Uh, also, as I said, I, I, I'm not happy with the coloring in it. Although maybe Tartag was the colorer and Giacoya was the anchor because they don't have anybody uh, credited as the colorist. Anyway, when I look at it as a whole with the interior art, I got to give it... I think the story can be followed, and I think the storytelling is good, so I'm going to give it uh, a little bit of credit for that. But I'm going to say a C- minus overall, uh, because it's. I, I think the, the inking and the coloring bring it to a below average gr uh, grade, even though I think the pencils are probably pretty decent. Uh, the story-wise, I dig it. I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, you know, I know that you guys have your problems with the fact that you came in in the middle of it. Uh, and, and that I, I totally can understand it. But for me, it, it had its its charms. So I'm going to say a B on the story. Uh, and overall, I'll give the book a B. Okay. Uh, um, I'll go next if you like. Sure. Um, I like what, what you said about the the box thing with the cover it, that didn't really bother me um so much when they did that during this time because I, I thought a lot of times it looked really cool and i would think the same thing here except the the problem's not so much the the box because they're actually doing a cool thing with the box where the griffin's wings come out of the box to give it kind of a 3d effect but the problem is, is the effect is completely spoiled by the logo of the beast. You know, so it's Amazing Adventures in tiny print at the top. Amazing Adventures featuring and then in giant print, the beast. Well, that big old logo spoils the 3D effect of the Griffin's wings breaking out of the box. So otherwise, I think that that would be really cool. Um, 
But regardless, I, I do like this cover. I, I like the, the colors really pop. Like I said, I like the Griffin. I couldn't tell you why, because he's damn goofy. But I, I do. There's something about him that I like. I, I, I don't I can never remember exactly what I remember him from, but he's just one of the earliest uh, Marvel bad guys I can remember from some story somewhere. I don't remember what. Um, he's just got a really unique look and unique power set, and he's just he's just fun because he's goofy. Um, I like the Beast, and the Beast looks a little more like what I've come to associate as the Beast than pretty much any of the rest of the art in the book. And I like the Angel, although I wish um, I wish he'd had one of either his um, blue and white or red and white costume. I don't know why he's just flying around, you know, shirtless in, in, you know, in slacks. It's just kind of a weird look. And shoes. Um, yeah. And shoes. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's kind of a bizarre look. They, they were, they were experimenting with different things with the X-Men at this point. And that's why right. in the, uh, in the Marvel team up issue, they don't have their costumes. They're in. Ah, <coughs> uh, that's Yeah, that's true. And but keep I mean, in mind, be... keep in mind, it was the '70s, and fashion was a little off. Yeah, I mean, but this would be post um, when Adams was on the book, right? So this uh-huh. would be post when he got the the really cool. Which was first, the red and white or the blue and white costume? Blue and white. The blue, the and, blue white. and white. The red and white came. The blue, The red and white came with burn. Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I, either one of those, I really, I think they're really sharp, and so for him to not have that look is just kind of surprising to me because I think that was, you know, like his coolest. It's definitely better than that weird, like I'm completely colorblind outfit that he had at one point with like the suspenders, and it was like every every <laughs> piece of the outfit was a different color. He looked, it looked like Alan Scott had designed it or something. It was really weird. Um, but anyway. Uh, great for this cover. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go a B on the cover. I really like this cover. Um, really, the only thing that brings it down for me again is you know the logo being you know kind of spoiling the effect, and also um, now the beast is more or less on model for this particular series, but his face just looks off model for me just because I'm more familiar with like the character he would become. But during this time, he was. I don't know. He was almost being treated as like the superhero werewolf or something. So it was really kind of weird. Um, so his face looks a little funny to me, but otherwise, yeah, I really dig this cover. Um, the interior art is really where this book takes a huge hit for me. I'm sorry, but I think this art is shit. And I have gone back and forth and back and forth trying to find one single panel where I could say something positive about it, and I don't find a one. There's not one panel in this that I like. I, I just think it's terrible. Um, I'm going to give it a D minus, and the only reason I'm not giving it an F is that there's not a panel in it that I can't follow what's going on. So it, it has that going for it. There, at least there's not a panel where I go, I don't even know what the hell I'm looking at. I reserve Fs for that. Um, like sometimes when not to pick on him, but like Keith Giffen, um, when he really got into that weird experimental phase, there was a lot of his art. I would just look at and go, I don't even know what the hell I'm looking at. That's an F for me. Um, so this doesn't, this isn't that bad to where I'm lost at any point. I just don't like it. I think just, it's not visually appealing. And I think it's a lot of different things. I think it's the color scheme. Definitely. Um, 
I think somewhat the inking, but I think overall, I think it's the layouts. I think I'm just not a Tom Sutton guy. Sorry, Tom Sutton. Um, and then the story, I don't know. In fairness, I, I was going to really dog on the story because for one thing, I thought it was way too wordy. Um, even more so than, I mean, Englehart can be a little wordy sometimes, but I don't remember him being like this wordy. I mean, this is like, this is Roy Thomas level wordy. And it's just neat. And I have no problem when, uh, you know, if a story has a lot of words in it, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I like to read a good story, but when it's just needlessly (laughs) wordy, you know, and this is like just too much. I mean, every single page, every single panel is just too much dialogue there's just too much words going on for no reason at all um so that really kind of brought it down for me being just tossed into the middle of the story with not really a lot of setup um yeah that that really i don't know and then the character some of the characters just seemed a little off the whole thing with professor x i thought was really kind of bizarre and um i thought that uh that warren seemed a little I mean, not only is he off model uh, in the art, but I thought he was off model in in some of his characterization and everything, too. And just, you know, outright telling, you know, the professor bull and then storming off. And and then the professor's just really, you know, just kind of weird because Gene says, shall I stop him, professor? He's like, or no, it was Scott rather says, shall I stop him, professor? He says, uh, no, Scott, it's not a question of right and wrong or of my obligation to Hank versus my obligation to Warren. It's a question of feelings. And this is something the angel feels in his heart. He must, I'm like, what? what? Since when? He's always the guy that's like bossing them around and directing them what they need to do and what they don't need to do. And then all of a sudden he's like, no, let, let him follow his feelings. And I'm like, when the hell did Professor X become a hippie? <laughs> when, when has this ever been about feelings? So it just was really, I don't know, it was kind of weird in the in the writing aspect. So, story-wise on this one, I'm going to go, I'm going to be fair and I'll go a middle-of-the-road C, although it's probably, for me, honestly, more like a C-. Um, I I just, I wanted to like it because I like so many of the characters in this story, but I just, I don't know, I just didn't dig it. And then to have completely missed that this was Patsy Walker, I don't I don't know who to blame on that. I think that's more the writer that they didn't throw me a bone at some point to mention that, oh, by the way, you know, the former Patsy Walker, whatever. I just never caught that at all. So Yeah. Even, even with all those words. Yeah, exactly. Um so overall grade. Uh, I'm going to say a C minus. I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I, I wanted to like it. I expected, you know, just based on that cover, I expect, oh, this is going to be a good one. But as soon as I opened that front cover, I was like, go, this is horrible. And it didn't get any better. All right. What did you think, Dave? I'm going to be very, very brief. Uh, this wasn't really my bag. <laughs> The cover is uh, dynamic. It's interesting. I'm going to give it a, a B minus. The interior art, I am with Scott. I am not a fan of it whatsoever. I could find one panel that stood out on page six, 
bottom panel, but other than that, I'm going to go with a C- minus on the art. The story, uh, you know, I, it's not a bad story. I blame the uh, ignorance I had coming into this. So I'm going to give them a break on the story and give it a, a, a B- minus for an overall average grade of a C. All right. So that's all look at Amazing Adventures. Uh, this, if I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned it before. Kirk requested that we do this one. Uh, awesome. so I, I, I did this in response. That's why I gave the old man comment. Uh, but uh, I, again, I, I, I dug this series. So you know, maybe there's nostalgia in it. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you guys, and thank you for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>